0: Drew, and AJ here in the room. And uh, we are in season four and, I don't know, five or six episodes into this season where we have been talking a lot about uh, secularism and Christianity, kind of uh, juxtaposing the two against each other, evaluating the, you know, the tenets. Again, going back to our very first episode, looking at the water that we're swimming in and the implications for us as believers. And that brings us to today, Drew, where we are looking at Core principles for the church thriving in a secular world. And last week, uh, if you listen to the episode, we talked about a vibrant alternative to a secular world, mainly looking at uh, some historic or some academic positions on the church relative to culture. What should the church's posture be relative to culture? Uh, today, going to look more uh, in depth at the actual um, kind of uh, attributes or principles of the church thriving in. The culture around us. So, uh, Drew, why don't you um, maybe recap last week a little bit and jump us into this week?
1: Yeah, we. Um, one quick programming note: we with this new season of ideology. You know, for those who've watched us for or listened to us for a while, um, we've been pretty consistent weekly episodes. And what we're moving into is series. So within um, season four, there are going to be series. This is the last episode in our initial series where we're talking about the church and secularism. We're going to take a couple-week break, and then we'll pick back up um, with a new series, probably looking at personhood and what does it mean um, to be persons. And we'll even hit a few of those ideas kind of as a teaser today. So for those who are used to us being weekly, you're not going to get Ideology the next couple weeks, but we have, what, 140 episodes? You're welcome to go back and um, find the one that you missed. And, and we'll we'll um, be back with new content in a couple weeks. So last week, we analyzed how does the church respond to culture? And I'll take uh, James Davison Hunter. You know, he, he kind of presents a few um, ways or postures that we can do of standing against the culture, of accommodating to the culture, or um, withdrawing from the culture. And he does a good job, I think, in his book um, to change the world of evaluating the negatives of those and probably his message is that if you think one of those postures is going to be the answer that you are wrong Um, balancing that with there are times where the church needs to do all three of those things so it doesn't mean that that's an absolute that we should never be against the culture we absolutely should we should never accommodate there may be times where that could be helpful um, or that we should never withdraw. There are times when we need to withdraw. So these are all modes that may be needed at times, but they're not absolutes where we can reduce what it means to be active and engaged in the mission of God to one of those three postures. And where he lands is this idea of faithful presence, which is a wonderful sounding concept, but um, from my perspective, maybe needs more development on what does that actually mean. And so we we ended our time where we introduced three principles, and this is where I want to start today, of um, spirit power versus self-focus, church formation versus hyper-individualism, and then distinction versus accommodation. And the goal today is to take those ideas from last week and uh, drill it in a bit more in the here and now um Maybe street level, we'll still kind of look at it philosophically, but really try to get into when I am evaluating the church's posture, or even myself as a believer in this world, how I'm relating, what what are um, ways of looking at that and and trying to get specific enough to where that's actually helpful. I'd like to start today, and this is maybe a teaser for our personhood conversation. Um, I'm going to start with a quote from David Coffey, and this is, Um, I've read some of his work. This is actually a different article that um, somebody else wrote about him, and I don't have the immediate attribution, but we can drop it in the show notes. And I'm kind of contrasting secularism and the Christian faith. Um, That's what we've been doing for this whole first series. Ground zero for that is our understanding of ourselves. And, and, you know, there's a, a web of other topics that fit within that, such as our understanding of the world around us, our understanding of God. But where I see the contrast most clearly is how do I understand who I am and how I fit into this world. So here's David Coffey talking about who we are as humanity. He says this, human beings are persons because they stand in a transcendental relationship to another than themselves, to God. And they achieve personhood before him through relations with other human beings in the world. And what he's meaning by this is that, contrasted to the secular narrative, I don't find my identity by looking within myself, going on this interior journey of self-actualization, but I find my identity through my relationship with God, first and foremost. So it's in Christ, through the life and the power and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, that I realize my identity as a person. And then that's expressed in this world, in my relationship with God, first and foremost, but then also in my relationship with other people. Uh, Another way of saying that is that the point is not that we self-actualize, which means we find our purpose, et cetera, in ourselves, but that we God-actualize or we actualize in the person of God. That's what it takes for us to be the fullness of who we're actually called to be. And so I want to use this as a jumping off point. That's a a teaser. We'll unpack the the personhood side of that in our next upcoming series, um, since that is ground zero from my vantage point. Um, for this kind of contrast with secularism and Christianity. But for our purpose today, I want to go back to those distinctives that we mentioned and, and highlight how this quote, I think, captures quite a few of them. Um, first is the spirit's power versus self-focus. And this this goes off in a lot of different directions. But at the core, do I think that what makes me unique what gives me purpose, what allows me to walk in the fullness of who I am, is something that I find within myself, in my own powers, or what is innately within me? Or do I think that what makes me who I am is my ongoing relationship with God, where I am ontologically in Christ, meaning what is most real about me is that I am in Christ, where I am being renewed consistently in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's my telos, that's my future. Is that as time goes on, and ultimately as I leave this body and am joined with God forever and eternity, that's the reality of who I am. And that reality is more real than who I am today, isolated from God. Um, said another way, when I'm disconnected from God, I'm cut off from my capacity to realize my own personhood. So, which one is it? And, and where do we lean into? I, I think the Spirit's power. Um, being the emphasis does to me refer to spiritual gifts and the authority of the Holy Spirit. So if you just play that out a little further, when I walk into the room, I'm not just walking into the room, Drew as an individual, but I'm walking into the room with this awareness that God is present through me, through you, Mick, through others, and God is wanting to do something. So my posture fundamentally changes where I'm looking to God to move, God to bring the breakthrough, God to tear down the wall, uh, deliver, whatever else needs to happen, rather than only approaching that through what I can do. And so that's maybe more um, in reference to power, or supernatural power. But I'm also looking at the Spirit's work of renewing me, of making me into the person I'm called to be. So instead of in this secular narrative, I'm going back and looking at this pure, innocent state that is who I am initially. I'm instead looking at it and saying that there's this this sin that is distorting my humanity and prohibiting me from being who I'm called to be. And so the power of the Holy Spirit is transforming me, is sanctifying me, is renewing me. And as time is going on, I'm being formed into the image of God in communion with God by the Holy
0: Spirit. Yeah, when you talk about uh, the Spirit's power versus our own self-power, I also I just think back to the very beginning with um, God breathing Life force, the ruach, into uh, Adam, the the first human, and animating Adam with the with the breath, the numa, and not just for formation, like you were just talking about, Drew, and not just for power, external works of power, but for literally like animating life force, which starts to sound a little mystical. But uh, I was looking at Hebrews one three as you were talking that God holds all things together by the word of His power, or uh, in Colossians one and, and so on and so forth, this idea of of um, uh, like our we owe our very existence, not just the inception of our existence, but the ongoing uh, ability to to even it kind of co to exist within myself is a gift of God is is attributable to the power of God uh, in terms of uh, what it means to be human. As I am inextricably linked to God to uh, not just give me life, um, in a, again, in, in terms of birth and conception, but in an ongoing sense, he makes me human. And we, kind of going back a couple episodes ago, we talked about the various philosophies compared and contrast secular and Christian philosophies, looking at anthropology, looking at ontology, that what is real is fundamentally outside of myself, that I am conforming to God and not the other way around. My, my starting point is God. Um, he is the life source. He holds me together by the, wor- by the word of his power. He is more ontologically substantive than I am um, and is the fixed point that I am conforming to instead of the other way around in the secular world, which is what I hear you... I think I hear you saying, Drew, when we talk about what it means to be a person, which we'll circle back to... Uh, but this idea that I do not achieve self-discovery, self-actualization by getting the world around me to conform to me and my own self-perception and and uh, psychological emotivism, but I actually attain to my God-given humanity by conforming to something outside the self.
1: Yeah, it's beautiful, Mick. That's very much um, what I'm trying to say here. And you know, as you're talking, I'm reminded going back into the Genesis account, so God forms humanity from the dust. Adam, Adam in Hebrew is uh, the word for man. And so God is forming man, and then he's breathing into us this force of life. But if you take that then and especially study John's gospel, what happens is Jesus, you know, man in Genesis is formed on the sixth day. Jesus is crucified on the sixth day where the son of man, the son of Adam, is breathing his last, and I think it's fascinating that it specifies. So that life force is breathed out, but then when Jesus is resurrected, he's resurrected on the first day, so he is now a new humanity. And so what Jesus has done is he has become a new way for us to be human. And then mirroring that account that you referenced in Genesis 2, the thing that Jesus does in his resurrected body is he breathes then on the disciples. John 20, 22, he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit, receive the Ruach, uh, you know, receive it again. And so that life force is now within us. And it goes back to what he said in John sixteen seven. it's for your good that I'm going away. And so in other mm-hmm. words, his death, burial, resurrection opens the door for a new humanity in his body. And then the breath of God is within us once again. and And that is more real than the world of sin that we live in. And we've referenced this in the past, but this idea of eschatological tension, meaning that we're still living where the the shadow of sin is cast over this world. And so we don't yet see the fullness of that. But our eternity is that, Mm -hmm. is I am fully alive with the breath of the Holy Spirit, formed entirely into the image of Christ, rejoined into his triune life, and in fellowship with the saints for all of eternity, you know, this gazing upon God, knowing God, walking with him in the new heavens and the new earth. I mean, it's amazing. That's our future. And we access that future now. Um, and so now today, that breath of life is within me and forming me, empowering me, you know, whatever it is that needs to happen. So I just, like, I think of that thought and, and think of how much more powerful that is. Like that's, when I gaze on that, it's so beautiful. It's so powerful, and when I look at the secular version of, of what the world is or who I am, it feels so shallow and so empty to me. Uh, it's just such a lesser story, you know, than, than what this is. And what's cool about it is not only is that an internal reality within me, but we can see it. God is moving and healing, and delivering and freeing, and it's power that, that works, you know, the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit is actual and real. It's not just a symbol, but it's something that takes place in the world around us and I can attest to it, as can you, as can so many of us. It's something that we've seen and tasted and touched, to use John's language from 1 John. And so it is. It's this idea of what does it mean to be full in our humanity, and it's alive in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I am convinced that has to become our paradigm. You know, where I see this uh, convict me the most is that I affirm and believe all of this, but functionally I still often live out of my own power. And I'll use ministry as an example. How often do I show up, you know, if I'm preaching or teaching or if this podcast or whatever, where I'm thinking that this is reliant upon my ability to do something? Do I really believe that it's the work of the Holy Spirit that brings about the change? Or do I think that I'm the one who brings the change and, you know, it's like a football game. You know, I do a touchdown to Jesus at the end when <laughs> it was me who did the work and I, I give a little credit to God. Or do I think that, God, if you don't show up and move and do your part, I really have nothing to offer? There's this place of desperation, and I would say, uh, you know, maybe particularly for the American soul where we're so convinced in the efficacy of our own agency that Mm. we are able to bring about the change that this world needs. I think there's a humility that's required where we don't lose the hope for what God is wanting to do, but we recognize it's the work of the Holy Spirit that activates that hope, not what we're able to do. And what I find for me is it doesn't make me do less, but it changes the way that I do. Mm-hmm. And so when I believe God's going to move, I'm very motivated to, to do stuff. I'm very motivated to work hard and to put myself out there. But I do so from this posture of faith that I don't think what, what the world needs is more of me. I think it's the work of the Holy Spirit is what this world needs. Mm-hmm. And I, I would love to say that I've arrived on that. I mean, I think this is a constant struggle for me, and I'm guessing for most of us. But I want to at least point the car in that direction for how to respond in this world
0: that's good and i'm thinking of several things as you're talking i listened to a podcast a little while back and i can't remember the gentleman's name and you could probably do a quick google search and find it but i think he wrote a book called low anthropology if i'm not mistaken and he was just talking about how the christian should meditate on our fragility on our limitedness on our temporality all relative to God's eternality, his omnipotence, his omniscience, and that we are like the psalmist, you know, talks about we are a vapor. We are here today, gone tomorrow. We're the flower of the field, the grass when the wind passes over it. Uh, our days are numbered and, and that prayer teaches us to, to number our days that we would present to you a heart of wisdom that we are utterly dependent upon God for not just our existence, but like you said, Drew, for ongoing fruitfulness in this life. And just to connect this back to this episode, the title of the episode, The Core Principles for the Church Thriving in a Secular Post-Christian World, what I think I hear you saying, Drew, is this has to go from the level of just kind of philosophic or or theological thought down to a lived reality that on a day-to-day basis. And this has actually been a, f- a fruit of this podcast for me doing the podcast over the past couple of years. Has been this meditation, the um, the naturalism, the materialism that has crept into my own spirituality, and and like you said, just functionally on a day to day basis. And so, I wish it was. I wish I was more developed than I am. But uh, I have taken steps forward in that meditation as I walk out the door, and and step into various meetings or situations, and just to pause. And God, if you don't move, if you don't animate me, if you don't um, convict. If you don't transform, then we're just spinning our wheels. Um, they're so. I mean, this is such a meta theme in the scriptures. This idea of Sabbath—that we work from a place of rest. The Psalm forty-six, ten: Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And how often we flip the script and you know become the proverbial Atlas carrying the weight of the world on our shoulders. That if we don't, it won't. Uh, but this being, that being the spirit of this age, and so the church walking in this conscientious dependence on the Holy Spirit, uh, what I think I hear you saying, Drew, is is to become potent, is to become a connection to the transcendent, a kind of a signpost that's pointing to something outside the self.
1: Yeah, amen. Yeah, and I think it's a, for me, I don't, yeah, obviously we're talking about very intellectual topics, but I always want to pull it back to worship of it is gazing upon God and who God is. And it's bringing about change and in my own life where what I hope is happening, and I appreciate how you frame this, Mick, is I'm weeding out these thoughts that I've believed that maybe hinder my ability to worship or to see God rightly. And sometimes that can be intellectual. Sometimes that can be very emotional. Sometimes that can be spiritual. Like we are embodied people. And the, the lies, the sin, the heresy, the demon, whatever it is, you know, it's a multifaceted thing that keeps us from seeing God clearly, but what we want to do is is ensure that where we land is always worship, not intellect for intellect's sake, Mm -hmm. but allowing ourselves to love God fully with our mind and allowing the Holy Spirit to transform our mind with the goal so that we can see God more clearly, and that's, that's why we do this, and I do think that's going to be so critical. Of the work and the power of the Holy Spirit, and and I'll just say this too: I, I I think a lot of times it's easy to have a doom and gloom mentality about the future, and for me that that comes where I I think maybe we have been more confronted in recent years with the end of what we're able to do, Mm -hmm. the control that we're able to provide, and that can feel very disorienting and, and scary. You know, when I realize there are things that. Maybe I had thought I would be able to control or have power over or utilize my gift in some way to secure. And it's really scary if you don't have that anymore, you know, and we could use like a very basic analogy would be finances. If I have the money for something God's calling me to do, that's really different than if I don't, Mm -hmm. you know, it's scary. Um, it, It really is scary. Yet I would say that's precisely the moment where God tends to move the most powerfully is where people don't have the power to do what he's calling them to do. But they come under from a place of dependence. Mm -hmm. I think many of us have financial stories of of miracle and testimony where God's done that. We could give any number of others. But on a social level, you know, when I've studied revivals, most of them occurred during times that seemed very bleak. And I think there's something about that bleakness that is a a gate check, so to speak, or it's exposing our lack of power and ability. And what that does is that prompts the church to humble themselves before the mighty hand of God and to pray and to become dependent in a way. And when we do that, then so often that is those are the moments where God chooses to move in his power. So if we could look at our modern situation through the lens of revival, I'm very hopeful because I think some of these ingredients are there for us, of humility, of the body unifying together, and being forced to expose the reality <clears throat> that we don't actually have what it takes, mm-hmm. that we need not one, not as a aesthetic, cool aspect of our worship, but we need the power of the Holy Spirit in the church. And we have no hope apart from that. It's actually a great place for the church to live and the church to be. So I'm very hopeful and I'm, I'm very thankful in a way, even though it's not always comfortable for God exposing our lack of ability in certain places. It's
0: good. So if, if I'm looking at the outline here, again, we're looking at Core principles for the church so this is the first one that you're enumerating spirit power versus self-focus but that's just one of three here um the second one being church formation versus hyper individualism and then we'll look at distinction versus accommodation so why don't you take us into that second one church formation versus hyper individualism i'm not going to spend as much time
1: on this one since our episode episode two of this series we talked about habitus and formation and so it's really a lot of those same principles Um, I'm going to go back to that David Coffey definition, where one of the things he's saying is that we achieve personhood before the Holy Spirit through relationships with other beings in the world. And in other words, my personhood is first and foremost with God, but there is a component of relationality with other humans. We can take that back to the the garden account in Genesis 2, where God created the relationship with humanity, um, where it is both God with us, but us with one another as a part of that, all the way back prior to sin. So Mm -hmm. there has always been something about us realizing the fullness of our personhood in relation with other people, and that goes back to God's created design. And we've talked at length about the power of cultural formation, the way that who you are affects who I am, and all the way down at the most basic level of the language that we use to communicate— that is a social product, becomes the very words and understanding by which we understand the world and ultimately even God. I mean, if you stay on that train long enough, it's wild to think about Mm -hmm. how dependent we are upon our culture and upon other people for our knowledge of just about anything. I I say all of that because I I think sometimes the message can be, all we need is God, we don't need people. I want to challenge that as an unbiblical thought. I think that is a thought that... er, maybe finds its origins more in modern individualism than it does in scripture or in church history. Now, I, I will flip that, and I say the thought that all I need is people and not God is also a, unbiblical, a more unbiblical thought, if I had mm-hmm. to rank them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a more unbiblical thought. I, I recognize that there are people who, for whatever reason, are isolated, and I trust that God will be enough to those people, but I don't believe that that is God's intention or ideal, that we live this atomized, isolated life from other believers. Um, The Catholic Church long proclaimed um, that you cannot be a Christian apart from the Church. That was very abused in the Middle Ages. I don't affirm it maybe um, as a full sentence, but there is something to be said about the fact that the reality of my walk with God is something that is necessarily realized in my communion with other people. And that's not like a design flaw that's not because i'm a weak person but that's because god intended for his grace to be mediated through other people or at least partially through other people and i don't say grace is salvific grace i'm not talking about salvation there but i'm talking about the ongoing experience of the grace of god is something that happens yes with the revelation that god gives me directly but it also happens through the touch or the words of another Mm -hmm. that is is a means of grace to me that i need to be the fullness of who God has called me to be,
0: and that ties back into the notion that God is a community within Himself. That we worship a triune God, three and one, and and uh, being created in His image, uh, I think a fundamental part of what that means is that we were created for uh, community, for communion with Him, for community with others. It's not good for man to be alone for multiple reasons. I think that's one of them. That we are we insufficiently image a Triune God in isolation, and and yeah, just agreeing there that a fundamental need for one another. So, um, needing the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, needing to to lean in to others and instead of pulling away, which is certainly a trend that was. Uh, Amplified during the the kind of COVID season, I think still continues to have ramifications. So much social anxiety, so much loneliness and depression, and uh, it's difficult. Relationships are really messy and really difficult. And it's, um, I think, with you know the advent of so many modern, uh, uh, what's what I'm looking for, just uh, conveniences uh, where we don't have to interact with people as much anymore, and it really takes a choice of the will to be a part of a local community, to press into friendship and family, and so on and so forth. But to to do that healthily over time really is, again, a clarion, kind of flashing neon light of of hope, of something transcendent, of something redemptive at work in the world. Yes.
1: And there's a, we have to be careful of a false dichotomy where it's either spiritual formation or the power of the Spirit or church community. Mm-hmm. All of those inform each other. So the more that I'm formed in the image of Christ, the more love I have, if, if it truly is the image of Christ for my brothers and sisters, uh, the more the power of the Holy Spirit that I experience, that the Holy Spirit moves through us, not just through me. And so the power of the Holy Spirit is, is revealed and is actualized and experienced communally. Uh, more than, than we would see individually. I mean, you even look at all the scriptural metaphors, you know, First Corinthians 12 is a great place to start of it's one body with many parts. And so the Lord is telling us that there are elements of the way that he's going to move and we can maybe categorize them from our vantage point of supernatural uh, and natural. I don't know that I prefer that distinction, but if that's the language we want to use, but in both cases, God distributes his gifts and the revelation of him across his body. And the message there is that without his body, we don't see him rightly. And so all of these different things, they all tie in together. Mm -hmm. But I find that the more I have one, if it's healthy, it leads Mm -hmm. me to the other. Uh, Another way of saying that is if I only have one. So if all I have is I'm just going to go to church, but I'm not going to attend to my own spiritual formation, and I'm going to be disconnected from the power of the Holy Spirit, then that's not going to be helpful in the end and could even be a place of deception for me or a problem for me. Or likewise, if I'm going to spend a ton of time in spiritual formation and maybe some informal relationship, but not really be tethered to a community somewhere, in the end, I'm going to be very prone to being deceived in the long run. And so it's, it's when they come together. Mm-hmm. Now, I recognize everyone, you know, we have a, a wide range of listeners coming from a lot of different places, so nothing but grace to individual circumstances. Part of what we do in a podcast or maybe the teaching gift in general is we highlight God's design and what should be, and then that has to be applied with grace to the particularities of people's circumstances. So sometimes what helps me to think about with all of this is I, I don't want to lose sight of what God's design is, And that's where I put my focus and my attention. And then I recognize there are times for us where, you know, it's like we're on a trail and we got to get back onto the path and Mm -hmm. it can be a little winding. But as long as the fixed point is clear, which is God's design and who he's made us to be, that's how we navigate the complexity of our individual lives. So you may be listening and you were just left to church because of challenges that came up and you're not sure what to do or where to go. I'm not trying to send the message that you're deficient. Um, and I would, if we were personally talking, I hope all you would hear from me is a ton of grace and awareness and empathy for your situation. And I would use this episode to say don't lose sight of the importance of this, even if it's going to take you a little bit to get back connected to the body. Um, It can't become an option for us as Christians, though there may need to be a healing process or something else. So that's where, on all of these different things, we don't want to allow the complexity or the pain of this life to cause us to back away from what is true, mm-hmm. even as we extend grace for the complexity of navigating the
0: challenges. Yeah, that's a good word. All right, so self, uh, spirit power versus self-focus, uh, church formation versus hyper-individualism. And by the way, you talk about uh, personhood being a series, I think we need to eventually do, I'm saying this out loud as we're recording, but... Accountability. Uh, something on spiritual formation, a little yeah. bit more, more in-depth to look at kind of the multidimensionality of how we are formed into the image of Christ, I think, which is extremely relevant to our kind of base content in this podcast.
1: Yeah. And I'd say one one reason why we maybe haven't hit that as strongly is mainly because there's been some other groups out there that are doing a really good work on it. It's true. So I have, you know, Don Mark Comer, I know many of you are familiar with his stuff and he's got great material. Um, Soul Shepherding is another group with Bill and Christy Galtier. So there are some other people out there that I'm, Um, that I I have a lot of respect for. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah, we can do a series. Part of our series might just be regurgitating what they've already said. So uh, we'll, we'll see if we can give it the ideology treatment, but as you wait for us to put that on our list, I um, would encourage you to check out some of those other resources because they do great work.
0: Yeah, and the only reason we would do a series on it, I totally agree, Practicing the Way, which is Comer's organization, John Ortberg stuff, Dallas Willard stuff. I mean, there's so much out there on spiritual formation. I think the only reason we would do it is just to, to maybe frame it in our vernacular, yeah. uh, interpreting it into our kind of our movement and what is most relevant for how we yeah. you know, do church praxis and so on.
1: Yeah, and I don't want the lack of us talking about it to signal that it's not important, and that might be another reason for us to do it, is um, we, we want to defer to others where they have good material, but um, sometimes if you don't talk about it, you can mm-hmm. unintentionally give the message that you don't think it's a big deal, and we definitely do.
0: Yeah, so uh, talk about this third um, distinction versus accommodation, this third core principle for the church thriving in a secular world. So this is the one that may be the most practical
1: of how do we as the church operate in our modern world? And I am making the argument that we need more distinction and less accommodation. Biblically 1 Corinthians 14 it's in reference to tongues, but there's this little line of you know speaking in tongues where an unbeliever walks in, falls to their knees and they exclaim surely God is among you. And what Paul is saying there is there's something about the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit that when the unbeliever walks in, they have an encounter with God, and the passage goes on. It's like the secrets of their heart are laid bare. There is an encounter with the risen God, an encounter with the power of the Holy Spirit that happens, and that's what draws people and knits people into the body. Mm -hmm. I am connected with some groups in South Asia that have seen remarkable growth, um, almost entirely among a non-Christian population in a you know, pretty closed access environment where there's a lot of persecution. And at the times where we've studied this um, rather large movement, what we found consistently is, you know, somewhere around 90% of conversions or church planning occurs through a miracle of some sort, some type of power encounter. And it makes sense because if you are living in an environment where following Christ is going to come at a cost, either physical violence, which they do face, or at least social ostracization, if it is going to come at some kind of a cost then it's probably not the quality of my coffee in the lobby that's going to win you to Christ. And I don't know that that was ever going to win you to Christ. But if you just think about it, it's like what would make somebody be willing to risk their lives? Even scripturally, you know, Paul got knocked off his donkey. You know, that's what it was. He had an encounter with the risen God. He was blinded and then healed again. It's, you know, God got his attention through through his power. So there's a distinction. There is a sense of I was in the world and I stepped Mm -hmm. through the doors And whether that's the literal doors of a church or the doors of my home or whatever the case may be, and I encountered something different, something distinct, something that I couldn't find in the world. So what I'm suggesting is that the church in America today needs to shift a background intuition or assumption away from accommodation to distinction. And let let me play this out a little bit because this may take a bit more explanation, my my thesis here is that most church growth, church planting, church and culture methodology at least of my lifetime is built on a unstated premise that there are changes we need to make to accommodate the world to to the world to make the church more palatable to people. So the idea is and this is maybe the underlying message that people are spiritually hungry. So that's like the starting point. However, Christianity is stale or unattractive due to a variety of different reasons, you know, the the church, the flaws of the church, the models of the church. It's unattractive. People are spiritually hungry, but they've been turned off. And so what we need to do is we need to meet them where they're at through new models, new approaches, or some type of accommodation. And if we can meet them where they're at, that is going to tap into that spiritual hunger and lead to the planting or formation or growth of churches. That intuition, I think, is behind almost every major movement, um, intellectual movement of how the church responds to culture, or most of them that I've come across. And I'll, I'll hit two of them, or two ways that I see this. One is this idea of removing barriers. So in other words, if you kind of think of that, there's there's something stale or something bad about us. I joked about coffee, but that's like <laughs> literally one of them. And I love coffee, so I'm all for if you are a pastor and have control over the quality of the coffee, please, please make it good for when I visit. So it's not to say that I don't care, but if you think of the assumption there, it's like, well, I came to church and they serve Folgers, and the decor looks like it's, you know, it's kitschy, it's out of the 70s, and I walked in and the auditorium looked kind of cluttered. It's obvious nobody's updated this place. So if we could just clean it all up, offer good coffee, you know, and I can, I can say that that's biblical hospitality, which is something positively talked about in Scripture, and so what I'm doing is I'm making it accommodating, so that when I invite my friend who doesn't know the Lord, they walk in and they're not immediately hit with all these things that are maybe insulting to them—not, you know, not not formally insulting, but subconsciously mm-hmm. make them feel unwelcomed. If I can remove all those barriers, then they're going to that spiritual hunger is going to you know meet with the truth of what I'm saying, and they'll encounter God. So if you analyze that, and I'm, I'm not disagreeing, you know, I think if you're a pastor, that can be a helpful thought process. So I'm not saying that that's all wrong. But there's maybe a premise underneath it that that's all that's required in this hour, that if we can just clean up our act, so to speak, then we'll see the church grow in America. And another way I see that is the model, you know? And ironically, maybe this started, if you go back to the 70s, it was that church is irrelevant and it's it's not something, our buildings, our music, every part of it is disconnected from people's lives, so it has to become more relevant. So our music starts to be more relevant, the type of buildings we meet in are relevant, We start naming our churches similarly to the way that we name business parks. You know, like we just start doing things to make it all more relevant with the idea that now people will come to church. Well, then it's like, well, no, people don't like institutions. So now the way to be relevant is to meet in homes and to meet organically and to meet in these, you know, monastic communities in in the urban core of America. And if we can do that. That's the way to do church. And then, well, it's really, it's actually back full circle because it's actually liturgy that people want. And it's actually, you know, you kind of just go through this, this thing where we've tried on all kinds of different models. And the idea is like, we need to mix up our model. We need to change the way that we do church. There's a different type of structure that connects with the zeitgeist of culture. And if we can just figure that thing out, then the church in America is gonna grow. And you know that's really the ticket. So to me, I, I, we could keep going. I mean, example after example, I'm not mentioning the theological accommodations um that's an easy target, you know, where the church has watered down its theology. I'm looking at things that maybe would fit more kind of my assumption of the type of person that's listening to this podcast um, is somebody that is desires to be faithful in Orthodox Christianity. So I'm exposing here that I still think we fall into this way of thinking. Mm-hmm. So point is, and to be nuanced here, I'm not saying that any of those thoughts are are necessarily bad. I think it's great to think through the gift of hospitality and the way that we treat our guests. I think it's great to think through what models of church are most conducive to the cultural hour that we're in. I think it's great to analyze our liturgy. You know, all those things can be very helpful. I have you know, spent, I don't even know how many hours, weeks, days, years studying everything I've just mentioned. But what I'm, what I'm after is the underlying thought that changing something like that is our ticket. Mm-hmm. What I would say is those things may be good, but you could perfect all of those things, and I'm not convinced it would make a difference. Instead, what I believe needs to happen in this hour is you mentioned this word potency, Mick, is that when people walk in the doors of our churches, they encounter the risen Christ. They encounter the power of the Holy Spirit. And yes, let's show hospitality. Yes, let's think through our model. Yes, let's think through the elements of our liturgy and what they communicate. But at the end of the day, if God is not present in our congregations where people walk through our doors and fall to their knees and say, surely God is among you, Mm -hmm. I don't know what we have to offer. You know, we're competing with brunch. You know, like really, if you think about it today, if, if there are people, they're three generations removed from ever going to church. Their Sunday morning is sleeping in, taking their dog on a walk, and having a late brunch. And spirituality and the way that they choose to define it, like me serving better coffee, is not that helpful. They can go get better coffee at a coffee shop. So. We, we have to just recognize a little bit more that we need to think missionally. We need to think like my friends in South Asia, which is that Christians in, are probably going to face more social barriers, not less, as time goes on. And I don't know the extent of how far that's going to go, but there's going to be an increasing cost associated with it. And if people don't have an encounter with God, I don't know that we have much to offer them. And the balance is I believe God is present. You know, and I I wonder what it would look like if all the time and energy spent on all those things I talked about was said spent on how do we as a people become sensitive to the power and the presence Mm -hmm. of God in our midst and focus on what God's doing in our midst? Like, I just wonder how, how that changes the way that we do church. And then you know, and then we can have the coffee conversation, but it's not a primary conversation.
0: Right. Yeah. And, you know, I was in a conversation with a group of people on Monday night um, this week of of this recording, and we were talking about the posture of the church relative to culture from a different angle and different context. And uh, somebody in the room used the word combative, like we are militant, like the church needs to be militant because of the rising tide of secularism and and we, we talked about that, and uh, the the counterpoint I presented is one I'm borrowing from Mark Sayers in Melbourne, Australia, Tyler Staten in Portland, our own uh, pastor, Andrew Bach in Seattle, pastor of one of our churches, uh, John Tyson in New York City. And the common theme I'm hearing from all of them is that you know secularism is a failed experiment, at least in its modern manifestation, this kind of post-Christian or not truly postmodern, but elements of postmodernism, it's a sinking ship. And uh, rather than engaging in the culture wars... Uh, or the accommodation of the you know trying to be like we will we will we have a great worship band here in Waco, but we will just we're just not going to compete with what's available in terms of the concerts. If you drive up to Dallas or down to Austin, and the lights, the the professionalism, the money that goes into that, like we're just there's just you know and the access people have to the best communicators on the planet and the best uh, uh, you know. Uh, counseling and the most trendy, um, videos and everything else. We're just not the church. The local church is, is not going to compete with that. But what I hear coming from them is this, again, this idea of potency and winsomeness that if the church can just walk the way of Jesus, and yes, in a local manifestation that has some relevancy to culture, like you've talked about in the past, Drew, speaks the same language as the surrounding culture and, and, um, and goes so far as to accommodate in order to be hospitable. But living, potent, living a potent Christianity becomes a life raft as people are sinking with the ship of secularism. There is, there is an alternative that, again, is, uh, is accommodating to the, to the point that it's welcoming. But beyond that, it's just a, a shining contrast to the darkness of the surrounding culture and to not get so caught up in looking like the very thing that is going down at sea, uh, but to be that, that potent alternative.
1: If I'm being nice, I'll say that secularism as a belief system has what I believe to be serious internal contradictions. If I'm not being nice, I call it a dumpster fire. But yeah, just to echo that point, why are we trying to look like something that's obviously not working And the something that's not working is better at doing what it does than we will ever be. And that's what you're saying. We will never be as good at being secular as secular is good at being secular. So we have to ask the question, is secular good in the first place? Which I think the answer to that is no. We have something different. We have an alternative. And to tie in some of these themes, um, what I really appreciate about some of the authors I cited last week, um, Stanley Hauerwas in particular, um, but others, even though I would have some disagreement with him on other points... This thought that when you walk through the doors of the church, you are encountering a different kingdom. So it should be when I come to church, and I don't just mean church if I walk through the doors of a physical church building, but I'm engaging and interacting with the people of God, it should feel like the atmosphere has changed. There is a distinction. There is a different way of living and talking and being human that I cannot get in secularism. Mm-hmm. And that should weird me out a little bit. It should make me uncomfortable. And I'll just tell on myself here, You know, I grew up, spent my whole life in charismatic churches. I think for so many years of my life, It's been this thing of I internally know I'm a little weird, you know, so I'm at church. My impulse is I don't want this to be weird for you because I'm worried if it's weird for you, it's going to scare you away. Like that's kind of what's gone on, I I think, in a lot of different churches. And even if you're not charismatic, you know, you're at a Baptist church, you still kind of have that idea of, oh, we're just weird. I'm so sorry. We're apologizing for our weirdness. I'm no longer apologizing for my weirdness. I'm I'm saying unapologetically, yes, we are weird. We are Mm -hmm. different. Mm -hmm. What you will get with us is going to feel weird to you and not what you feel in the world. I'm, I'm not trying to flaunt that. I'm not trying to put that on. I'm not right. trying to... Not
0: weird for weird sake.
1: Yeah, not, right. not weird for yeah, showmanship or something like that, but weird in the sense of, I'm okay with you being uncomfortable. If we're in a worship setting and the presence of God um, is in the room in some kind of very thick way and there's prophetic words and healing happening, I'm really okay with that mm-hmm. because people need Jesus. And some people, that might be too much for them, but maybe five years from now when they're in a dark place, where do they go? And we've seen that so many times. And, and so I'm just, I'm okay with that. Um, it may be a different tradition, you know, maybe it's liturgy and we're talking about the the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. That, that's a very weird thought, mm-hmm. but I'm okay with that. I don't want to water that down for somebody. I want to amplify, like, you are tasting, tangibly tasting something that's not of this world, you know? That's such a cool idea. Um, I, I could keep going, you know, but mm-hmm. it's where we are distinct. Sitting in the, the teaching of Scripture, I don't want to back off of the uncomfortable truths that challenge our culture, that present a different way. And just shout out for you, Mick. Um, Mick and Maddie Eccles did a sermon on gender at Antioch Waco. This will be 10 days or eight days ago from the time this podcast gets released. I love that. It's a great example of we are presenting alternatives that have the potential to make us uncomfortable, uh, but rather than apologize for that, say, that's fine. That's who we are. Our family's a little different, you know? And, and yeah, I, I appreciate the posture of not, um, uh, we don't need it to be the world is our enemy and we're attacking we just need to be different. We need mm-hmm. to actually be different, live different. And at times we need to talk about the distinction, and we do that on this podcast. But our primary emphasis should be on actually living the difference. If we don't have something tangibly different, we really have nothing to offer. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a, my, my word today, It's a it's a shift in our impulse. If our impulse has been, how do I accommodate and reduce the tension I feel with those around me or the world around me and kind of eliminate the desire to or eliminate the feeling of not fitting in um, or being a little weird, instead, it's resolving that that's okay and probably a healthy thing. Maybe phrased differently, if we don't feel that, then that's probably a sign we're not doing it right. If, if I look at the world around me and there's no point of tension, there's no sense of distinction, then I would really challenge, is that a biblical church or where the church needs to be in this hour?
0: Mm-hmm. And the degree of weirdness is going to be a relative to kind of the, the position of culture in any given moment so like as culture trends away from judeo-christian principles that contrast that tension is only going to or should increase as the church walks the way of jesus I, I think again we've mentioned this before but you know being a jew in jerusalem was a very different experience from being a jew in babylon and uh, you know a devoted uh, worshiper of yahweh in jerusalem was still in contrast to your kind of mainline Jews that weren't um, uh, genuinely worshiping Yahweh, but a genuine worshiper of Yahweh in Babylon was going to stand in even greater contrast to your average uh, Babylonian at the time. And so I think as we observe culture trending away from Judeo-Christian principles and and beliefs, um, the church uh, uh, increasing in potency will amplify that contrast. And that's where I think I hear your admonition, Drew, to get comfortable with that distinction, get comfortable with that contrast. And not weird for weird's sake, but as we walk the way of Jesus amidst a culture that is increasingly not walking the way of Jesus, that should stand out. So give two more thoughts to
1: close out. First is based on what you just shared, Mick, is uh, we, as we, as we walk the way of Jesus, as we are different, I think we have to be really careful to to count the cost up front that that's probably going to mean ostracization at some level. Um, I don't think we are going to be as acclaimed culturally as we are used to or affirmed culturally as we are used to. And it's been pretty normal if you look at most societies in history where Christians are a minority faith, they are attacked um, and, and, not, and I'm not talking about physical violence. I'm actually not that concerned about physical persecution. It could happen. But let's be real. If that were to happen today, that would probably snap a lot of Christians in gear. They'd probably get more devout, devoted, and it'd probably be fine. Like Historically, um, that type of persecution, not always, but often has led to the revitalization of the church. I'm a lot more concerned about the slow social erosion, where there's a cost to the faith that's not physical violence, it's not persecution, but it's it's this default Mm -hmm. awareness that Mm -hmm. I'm cutting myself off from social advancement because of my faith. And I think right now, I I, I think there's a lot out there of negativity about the church or evangelicalism or whatever thing, and some of that's earned. Like some of that is hypocrisy that we've had and flaws in the church. And so I think wherever that is the case, we have to search our hearts and, and repent. But some of that Is this other thing of, you know, we are now a minority faith, we are cultural heretics. And so people are looking for reasons to diminish that. And I don't know always where those lines are. But, you know, it's that thing. And uh, grown up charismatic, I can relate to this because when people ask, you know, what church you go to, I'd always be like, eh, you know, kind of say the name of the <laughs> church slowly. I, I'm very used to people going, oh, interesting, you mm-hmm, know, not, mm-hmm. wow, good for you.
0: Conversation killer.
1: Yeah, this is maybe where charismatics have the edge, um, where we have always been used to being the outcast. Um, so there you go. But you, you look historically, and in Rome, Christians were considered atheists because they wouldn't worship the gods and were often blamed for events in society that they're the ones who, you know, because they didn't pay homage to the gods, they're the ones who brought about this tragedy. Christians were accused of being cannibals, where people took, you know, the rites that happened at the Lord's Supper and you know, the talk of eating the body and blood of Christ and and believed that that was literal cannibalism. They were accused of um, sexual deviancy because the Christians had love feasts, which were not sexual at all, but were interpreted sexually. Like there's been thing after thing Uh after thing historically where it's not new. And you go to many countries around the world today, there are stigmas of Christians that are tied to being in a minority faith. And so I think that's something we're gonna have to be careful about. If, If maybe put another way, if we're too concerned with how the world views us, then there's going to be a cost that has to be counted, and the distinction, the cost of distinction, is a willingness to not be understood or even at times be maligned at a societal level. And it's complex because some of that is, um, you know, maybe a rebuke that we've earned. And I think we have to be open, and we can't just write it all off as people attacking the church. But we also have to recognize there's an impulse here that's not just accountability for where the church needs to grow, um, but there's also an impulse here that's trying to marginalize the church because it is a minority faith in a world that doesn't understand. So we'll pause there. We've, we've covered enough ground for today. Um, I know I promised you two things, but we'll just stick with one and um, see you guys next week in a couple weeks here at Ideology. And we'll pick back up with a new series talking about personhood.
0: also say there, Drew, that <laughs> the national test. So if your phone went off on October 4th, then you know that we were recording on October 4th at 1:18 p.m. when all of our phones went bonkers. I thought it was
1: supposed to be later. Well, apparently. Maybe it was, I think it said 2.20 Eastern time.
0: Apparently not. We probably do need to cut this out of the video. Yeah. <laughs> and if we don't, this it is makes for, good. for your you. listening pleasure.